Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. So what's going on this week? Oh, what's going on this week? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what week are we? We're almost in March, which is, is really exciting. And, um, and you know, we're starting to see some, some races pop up on the calendars that seem to be like, uh, you know, like they're going to actually happen. We have some runners that have some goal races coming up in March, which is really exciting, and some in April. And actually, we just got an email yesterday from our previous podcast guest, S. Mark Courtney, who is a race director for the not sob n-o-t-s-o-b which is boston backwards uh that marathon that i did in the fall um uh he is a race director and a multi uh time boston finisher and he put together a small informal but yet time and certified course and race uh in the fall that i did and along with a few of our runners and super impressed at how organized it was and how well it went. And he got us and told us he's going to, he just got permission to do another version of that race on April 10th, which is right around Boston when Boston normally would be uh, same course, the Lake Latonka community. It's a looped course. It's a really fabulous course, super well organized, uh, really well timed because he is a, a timer himself he puts out timing mats every mile on the course because it's looped so it's every mile on the loop it's a five mile loop that you do five times with a little addition uh, at the very beginning um, but it's a great race so it's going to be limited to 125 runners and registration information we believe will be up pretty soon but anybody who has been kind of building and training toward a spring marathon whether just doing that to keep an eye out for a marathon, or maybe you've been training for one that got canceled uh, April 10th and will be a great option. And one that we know from firsthand experience will go off well, organized, safely, distanced, um, and and uh, we think is a really good option for those who are looking for, for a spring marathon. So once we get that information from him, we will post it on our social media pages and make sure people know how to register. Out. Uh, S. Mark Courtney's races is that the permits do not require city approval. So it's in a private, it's in a private area, private neighborhood. And so that allows them more flexibility. We've noticed there have been some races out there where permits have been pulled last minute. And we feel a, a lot more confident about Mark's races based on the location. In addition to that race, um, there are other races popping up we don't know as much about the likelihood of the permits being pulled, but we do know that they've received um, great reviews. One is this race for our Midwest runners. It's outside of Chicago in a town known as Schaumburg, Illinois. That was just posted um, a couple of days ago that that seems like a really a, a likely go. That's in May. It's a marathon and half marathon distance. And lastly, near us in Salisbury, Maryland, on the eastern shore, uh, the race director has been very positive and confident about that marathon going off, and that too is in early May. So there are some options popping up out there. So if you are someone that really, really wants to do a marathon, uh, we suggest looking at some of those. Yeah, the one thing we would we would also recommend though, if you're looking at marathons, especially outside of your state, is to really look into what are the um, COVID precautions, the COVID regulations in the state, what are the numbers look like? Because some of the states that are allowing races do have higher COVID numbers and, and, and lack more lax restrictions. So maybe no masking requirements. Um, so if you're somebody who's not comfortable with that, 
really, it's, it's really um, incumbent upon you to look into that and keep that in mind that if you're gonna be traveling somewhere to check that out in advance and make sure that you're comfortable with, with what the COVID numbers look like there and what precautions are in place and what their safety plan looks like. If you go to a race website and they don't have any COVID procedures or COVID safety plan, that should be a red flag, but you really wanna make sure it looks like the race directors have thought about that and, and look at the at the city itself or the, the, the area where it's taking place, especially if you have to travel there and spend a day or two there, you wanna make sure that it's within your comfort zone and everyone has different risk kind of a risk temperament. So um, really just making sure that you're comfortable with that if you're signing up for a raise. Great point. So one of the things we've talked about on our podcast quite a bit is to stay fit and prepare for races. Sometimes you have to do little things outside of racing. And one of the little things that we've discovered, especially during this year, is how it really makes a difference when you don't wear shoes all day. And um, I know both of us have found that we walk around our house a lot without any shoes. And as a result, that can have an impact on how our feet feel and our running. And some of our runners have also noticed some issues with that as well. So we um, found this shoe company called Ufos and we have been obsessed with their comfort shoes. So I know Lisa, you wear in the summer, the sandals uh, a lot. And you found yourself these like cool slippers to wear around the house. And so we, we reached out to Ufos and we talked to them and they have kindly um, agreed to be our sponsor for our podcast. And we wanted to do a giveaway this month and it's really easy to do. We, first of all, really want our runners and our listeners to wear proper footwear outside of running so that you are taking care of those feet. And secondly, how great is it that we're able to give a free pair away to um, any of our listeners? So here's the deal. Here's all you have to do to enter to win a pair of Ufo's slippers to wear around your house. We just asked Actually, that any you shoes, any, there's a whole line. They now have boots, booties. It doesn't have to be the slide. So um, they are really awesome recovery shoes. So uh, yeah, it, it, and We've, we've gotten, we both have pairs of the boots or booties and they've been great for the winter too. So our winner gets to pick from their line, which, which style they would like of, of the recovery shoes. Great point. I think I'm just obsessed with the, with the slippers. <laughs> That's all I wear. But, um, so all you have to do to enter is leave a review on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have already left a review or you don't want to leave a review, then simply take a screenshot of our podcast and share it on social media and tag us so that we know that you did this to enter to win. Just shoot us an email or a DM or message us and let us know, hey, I left you a review and that will be your entry to win. And we'll announce the winner on our next episode. So uh, please do that. Enter to win. Why not? You get a free pair of comfort shoes to protect your feet. So um Shoot us an email at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to let us know that you've done that, either posted the review or shared our podcast on social media. That's that's your entry. So just shoot us an email again. It's Julie and A N D Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com. And that'll be your entry. That's right. So we have two great guests coming up today. This is like it was just such a fun episode. I kind of don't have words because 
I really still can't believe we had the chance to interview them. So we I feel like it's all the feels, all the feels. <laughs> it describes how totally. I felt from this, this experience. This was, and we should maybe like back up and tell the story of how we connected with um, Sarah May. And um, we had emailed um, Gloria Ratti, who was the historian for the BAA, uh, the Boston Athletic Association. We saw Gloria speak on a panel last time we were at the Boston Marathon, and I think she is not only a riot and hilarious and kind and warm, but really a pioneer in women's running. And, and one of the reasons, the behind the scenes reasons why women really were able to make an, an entree into, into, the, into the Boston Marathon. And not only that, but once they did, that they got recognition. Um, she's been involved in the BAA from you know many, many, many years ago, from when women first started running um, in the Boston Marathon. And she's really made sure that those women have gotten the recognition that they deserve. So we've always wanted to have her on the podcast and we reached out to her and she very kindly responded right away and said, poo poo on me. Don't, don't, you don't want to interview me, but who you really would love to interview my friends, uh, Sarah Mae Berman and um, Bobby Gibbs, who are two of the earliest women to run the Boston Marathon, actually unofficially before women were officially allowed to run the Boston Marathon. And she copied them on the email they're all buddies. And the two of them wrote back right away and said, absolutely, we'd love to talk to you. And all of a sudden we find ourselves kind of in a position to really delve into the history of women running the Boston Marathon, which we both recognize, like we stand on the shoulders of these women. And um, we take for granted sometimes that now 50% or more of, of these fields are, are women and there are lots of women running and it's normal for women to be running marathons and, and accomplishing big, big accomplishments. But back then it was not. Um, it was not uh, not as commonplace. That's right. So we wrote to Sarah May Berman and we asked her to be on the podcast. And Sarah responded immediately and said, Sarah May responded immediately and said, I would love to. And I'd like my husband, Larry, to join me. And it seemed so appropriate for Larry to join her because Larry is not only Sarah May's husband, but he's also her coach and biggest cheerleader. So today, you have the opportunity to hear an interview with Sarah May and Larry Berman. Uh, Sarah May is a just an incredible athlete. She is not only the three-time winner of the Boston Marathon. She won in 1969, 1970, and 1971. But she's also a champion uh, ski racer along with Larry. Larry is also an incredible runner, and they both share uh, her journey and his journey uh, the Boston, to the Boston Marathon, how she got there, and all of the trials and tribulations that she went through uh, as a woman who was not recognized as an official entrant. Now, many people already know the story of Catherine Switzer. She's also an amazing uh, pioneer in women's running. She was a guest on our podcast a couple of years ago. And what's different about Sarah May versus Catherine Switzer is that Catherine Switzer wore a bib when she ran her first marathon. And so that was she a big deal. Yeah, and she registered. She, registered. she was a registered runner. Bib. And they didn't realize she was a woman, so that's how she got the bib, but she was registered runner in, in the marathon, right? And Jacques Semple, of course, that's the famous picture we've all seen, tries to pull her off the course and she uh, had a lot of courage and kept going and finished the marathon. And it's just, it's such a great story. And Sarah May was running just a couple of years later from 1969 to 1971. 
she did not wear a bib to run, but she was recognized among the course. And she'll talk a lot more about this. And while she's a parent pioneer, she was able to do this because she got the support of the men who rallied around her. And I think that to me was something that we didn't talk about in the interview, but I just want to comment on this. What allows people to be included in spaces that they were once excluded is the people who are already included need to invite them in. And, you know, this is a conversation we've had a lot, a lot this year. And of course, we recognize that there needs to be more diversity in the running space, particularly the Boston Marathon space. And we've talked about this a lot. So hearing this story about what Sarah May went through, how she had the support of not only her incredible husband, Larry, but also she references all the men in her sphere who, who lifted her up and didn't look at her as a threat in their space, but rather lifted her up and allowed her to join them and to achieve great things. Absolutely. And I'd love to just um, Lair and Sarah May's story and how they've, they've been together for many, many decades and they do everything together and they support each other and they train together and they exercise together. And um, just that they're each other's biggest cheerleaders, which is really heartwarming to me. So we are, we were so excited to talk to them. I feel like we could have talked to them for, for days and we have made a, a, a vow to um, visit them when we go to Boston. Next time we go to Boston, fingers crossed, hopefully in the not so distant future. And I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, I'm excited to share our conversation with them and, and their insights that they have. Absolutely. So we don't want to take up any more time because we want to hand it over to Sarah May and Larry Berman. But Lisa, it was such a pleasure to talk to them with you. I felt like we really got to experience something that was near and dear to us. Uh, we always love learning more about the history of the Boston Marathon and to be able to talk to, to these two legends together was really just such a treat. So I'm glad that we were able to do that together. Me too. So have a great week. Everyone make sure you uh, enter the UFOs promotion. We will announce a, a winner in, in I'd say probably the next week or so, right? Julie, do we have a, a deadline for, for that? Let's say. Uh, yeah, let's give everyone a week. How's that? We'll announce it in our next so. episode. Oh, that's a great That idea. sounds great. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Have a great week. You too. Bye. Bye. What is it we can do for you? Okay, so we are going to start recording. And if you're okay with it, we are going to ask you some questions for our podcast. We, um, we have a podcast that we produce weekly that we started a few years ago to help people prepare for the Boston Marathon. We are coaches in the DC area. We coach, we've now coached over a thousand runners. We've been doing this for 11 years, but our personal passion is the Boston Marathon because we've run it between us 27 times. And while we are from the DC area, we feel such a connection to the city of Boston and we love everything about it. And uh, we both had the pleasure of seeing you from afar, Sarah May on your both of your panels and most recently in 2019 when you spoke. And you know, we hope to be back someday soon, but in the meantime, we wanna keep our listeners and our runners motivated and excited about Boston and what better way than to learn more about the history and the shoulders upon which we all stand, thanks to you and Larry and all that you did. So if 
you're inclined, we just want to interview you and talk with you for about 45 minutes about your life. The two of you have done everything together the whole, the whole time. Yes, that's yeah. the way we work, that's which we love. We've organized our lives. We Fantastic. love that. And, and Sarah May, you started running, or at least your first race was way back when, when you had three young kids. Is that right? Right. In, um, in 1964, uh, Larry had been trying the, the previous fall and into the winter on a track, indoor track, to get me to break um, eight minute pace for five miles. And I couldn't do it. Even when he was running with me, even when he had had me Even run, with a whip. <laughs> even, even when he, he had, had trained me to do intervals at the right pace. Pace, pace training. Yeah. Wait, just, can, we go, can we go back for one second though? Larry, how did your, your wife pops out three kids how did you, what was the conversation like in 1964 before that, when you said, I think you should start running? How did that happen? Oh, we didn't start running in 64. Um, we were living in Providence when I was finishing school. I was going to uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And um, Larry would go out and run and I would be doing work, my homework. And uh Finally, he got me to run. Oh, in the summer. Oh, yeah. In the summertime, we would rent a room in Boston. So he wouldn't have to commute. Because there was a, an arts festival on Boston Common, which ran for about five weeks with visual and theater arts and wonderful. All, virtually all free for five weeks. It was wonderful. And so we wanted to be there during the summer so we wouldn't have to drive back and forth at night from Providence to attend things there. So we rented a room for two summers. And um, I would go out, we would go over to Jamaica Pond and I would run around their 1.4 mile path. And I was a dutiful little wife who would sit by the side and watch him. And one day he said to me, why don't you come and run? This was 1957. And um, I Didn't said, I ask you, are you satisfied? No, no, that was later. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ran, he, he, I said, okay. So um, he said, let's go. And I started running and I was sprinting. I, I mean, what had one seen of women runners to that point? One had seen sprinters. And so that's what I was doing. And after about 100 yards, my head was pounding, my ears were ringing, I was gasping for breath, and I said, I can't do this anymore. And he said, I, I said, I can't go this fast. He said, who told you to? And this was a whole new education to me because I assumed that running meant sprinting. So by the end of the summer, I was able to run around the whole pond, which is a mile and a quarter. Mile 1.4. It's very precise. He's an engineer, you know. He worked on the Apollo project. And um, then um, I went back to school, and in the fall, there was a track meet in Providence. Yeah. And um, so I, it was a handicapped track meet, and I was given the most handicapped. You ran, it was a 50-yard dash. Yeah. <laughs> and I finished third, <laughs> gasping. And then the following year, um, I, uh, I, we had our first child. She was born at the end of August. But in the meantime, uh, we, were, we were living in this house in Cambridge. 
And um, Larry was finishing, he'd finished graduate school and he was working at an MIT lab. And um, so he would go down to the MIT track and he would run around the track. And um, then we had our next child about 15 months later, a little close. And um, after Sandy was born, um, Larry looked at me and he said, are you happy with the shape you're in? And uh, having just had two children, I really wasn't. What was, I'm just, what was your reaction when he asked you that? Were you? Oh, Larry is, is a wonderful guy. Okay. I can tell. And I would move heaven and earth to please him. It came from a good place. <laughs> and I said, well, not really. So he got me running again. again. And uh, we were down to the MIT track. And um, the MIT track at that time was a cinder track. So there were piles of dirt and stuff beside the track. So we would sit the kids uh, by the piles of dirt and cinders, and they would play, and they could see us running around, mm -hmm. and we could see them. And, and we were never more than like 150 yards away. And um, finally, uh, I was able to do two miles in one piece. See, I said, I've done it. And he said, yeah, now you got to do it faster. I mean, this whole thing was a new concept to me. Remember, we're talking the 1950s, the, at the end of the 50s, the early 60s. Larry, um, did you have a sense when you watched Sarah May run then that she had a natural talent? Is that what propelled no, you to push her more? No, no. <laughs> to, to be a runner, you don't have to have some kind of special talent, you know. You just have to want to do it. And New England had a lot of road races. Larry took part in many of them. And uh, I would be there with the children cheering on. And you get to know the other families. It's, it's very nice. It used to be because it was a small group. And you got to know. I mean, when, when I was out running, if I was running down a local street or road and I saw somebody perhaps 300 yards ahead of me, I couldn't really see his, obviously his face, but I could probably tell from his running style who it was, <laughs> because that's how small the, the group was. So um, Larry uh, worked on worked with me to try to get me to run faster. And farther. And farther. And so eventually the goal was eight minute pace for five miles, 40 minutes. and. Um, couldn't manage to do it, even when he was running with me. So finally, he said, you know, if we got you in a road race, uh, there'd be lots of people around you. And um, that's probably, you know, the, the adrenaline, the, the group around you and everything, that's probably good for 40 seconds a mile, better. We call so, that race day magic. We, we call that race day magic. We always yeah. tell our runners that who say, I'm not going to be able to hold that pace. We say, you will on race day. Like exactly, yeah. Larry had the right idea. It's that race yeah. day magic. So um, the uh, race that Larry picked was a five-mile handicap race in Marlborough, Mass. It was in June of 64. And uh, we had a babysitter with us to look after the children, because I had three kids by that point. And... Um, Larry went into the local Y to sign up. And uh, I mean, I wasn't going to sign up. I knew that it wasn't. But you came dressed to I run. I came dressed to run. I had a singlet on and shorts. 
And um, when the guys saw me, and they had seen me at, at races with Larry, but when they saw me dressed to run, oh, are you going to run today? Yeah. Oh, that's terrific. I wish my wife would do it. I wish my girlfriend would do it. I mean, that was very welcoming. If they had been nasty, I might have had a different reaction. But they weren't. They were wonderful. And um, a handicap race, as you know, they start the slowest people first. And then they start the next slowest and the next slowest. And there's a handicapper <clears throat> who has kept track of people's times from various road races. So they have some kind of idea about where people fit. So I was on the starting line with two old men. I call them old. They were in their late 50s. And <laughs> I don't think of that now. But, and uh, two young boys. And the gun went off, and we went, we went along. Now, to prepare me for the right pace, Larry had me do interval 220s at the right pace so that I would have it in my head. In your muscles. In, well, what kind of pace I was supposed to do. So we went off, and I'm trying to remember the kind of pace I'm supposed to do. Eventually, some of the runners who start in back of us start catching up and going ahead of us. And the guys were wonderful. They were encouraging. They were friendly. Oh, you're looking good. Keep it up. Good work. You know, as they went by, it was wonderful. It was terrific. And I ran a 38-37. So after that, I went in several road races that year. And um, was it the Claremont race? Was that in that year? Yes. In the fall of 64, of, um, um, the road race uh, organizers for Claremont, New Hampshire, had heard of this strange woman who was running and finishing. And they invited me. And when I finished, they presented me with roses. That was, that was a 10 miler. Yes, so that was a 10 <laughs> They presented you with roses and they invited you, but were you were you allowed at that point to be official in that race? No, or no, was that... no, no, no. Okay. I mean, I knew that, that women were not officially allowed. Um, until 1958, the longest sanctioned, the longest distance for women in a sanctioned race was 200 yards, 220 meters. No, the other way around. But, 220 yards. Okay, 220 <laughs> yards. And finally, in uh, 58, um, when it was learned that in the Rome Olympics in 60, they were going to have a women's half mile, uh, some of the women, like Grace Butcher, who had been working very hard to persuade the AAU that women could and ought to be allowed to run the half mile, um, she, got, she organized what they allowed her to call an exhibition race. And she trained some girls, and she ran with them. What did she run? A two twenty? I think she may have. She may have run under two twenty, because I know and, she had. I know. I think her best was like two eighteen or yeah. something. So um, I'm just aware of this history, and um, finally, in the in uh, at the sixty two convention, um, they decided that if women were going to be allowed to run a half mile, they needed to do some over distance in the fall so they'd be ready for winter track. So they decided to hold a mile and a quarter cross-country races. Those were allowed. And our club held some of the first, had held the first set of races in the fall of 63 
uh, around uh, Fresh Pond here in Cambridge. And and was it that at that point when your club started doing those races? Was that when you personally started the Cambridge Club, or was was we there start, a different? We club? started the club in '62. In '62, okay. Okay. In the fall of '62. I mean, I uh, originally when we moved to Boston to Cambridge, I joined a local club, and I found that it really sort of wasn't what I wanted. I wanted something more on the the style of the European clubs where it's really lots of get-togethers. It's like a family group almost, the club. And the club I joined wasn't, so I decided I needed to start my own. So we did. And it's still going. Eventually, the, the club included cross-country skiing and orienteering. But at that point, it was just running. And... Um, so we had a, a full season of um, six or seven races. And the, the girls who ran were the girls from a local track club called the Red Diamond AC. Most of them were African-American girls. And they had a wonderful uh, coach, uh, an older woman. And um, Larry had handicapped it. So I could never win because he wanted the girls. We, we told the girls well, we gave him trophies <laughs> that the first three places would get trophies. I never did better than third, <laughs> but we all improved over the fall. It was very interesting. And after our season was over, we took three of the girls with us uh, to a big race in, the, in a park west of Philadelphia. We stayed at the home of uh, cousins who lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey just across the river. And um, that was very exciting for them that they, that they were traveling like that. And um, so, uh, but through the, through the years, we went to the AAU 65 convention to try to persuade them that they should allow women to run um, three miles. And, um, not a championship, just to allow a sanctioned race at three miles. They didn't want to hear it. The next year, the convention was in Hawaii. And we went. Larry's mother came with us and the three kids. And uh, we Well, my, my brother was in the Army and was stationed in Hawaii. So we figured this would be a chance for my mother to visit my brother. So... Um, uh, we went to the convention and they didn't want to let us speak. And here we'd spent all this money, made all this, you know, all these arrangements. And finally, one of the vice presidents said, oh, do let her speak. So I, we spoke. But they were not interested in um, extending the distance. I have to tell you one other thing about oh, yeah. the mile and a quarter. When, they, when the convention in 62 approved the mile and a quarter, People were typing on, you know, old-fashioned typewriters, you know, manual typewriters. Well, the fraction key is on the little finger of your right hand, and you have to hold the shift down and press the fraction key to get the quarter. Well, the typist didn't do that. So the distance in the manual, in the rule book, in the rule book said a mile and a half. And the people who had been at the convention knew it was a mile and a quarter, and they ran their girls a mile and a quarter. Those who hadn't been at the convention uh, said, a mile, the rule book. said a mile and a half, so they ran the girls a mile and a half. 
when nobody lost any ovaries or anything over the ex the extended distance, uh, it was changed the next year to a mile and a half. And through the 60s, it finally got to be two miles, two and a half miles. But of course, in the 60s, that's when we started running marathons. And so um, the women's interest in running long overtook the AAU's um, interest in keeping women safe. That's what they were doing, they were keeping women safe. That was my question was, was that the only reason they, they felt no. that it, there were medical reasons or were there no. other reasons? No, 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 no. Turf. Turf. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Well, in, an, in a sport, you know, you get you develop teams and the teams get to go on trips, especially international if trips. If they've got good people. If you, you know, if on international trips. And then some of the coaches and the managers and officials get to go along and wear these beautiful blue blazers and be officials. And it's just wonderful. Well, the problem is that if you now allow in, uh, up to that point, all of the females running were short distance runners. Teens. Well, mostly very young, you know, teens. A few older, like at uh, what's the school? Tennessee A&I, oh, oh, yeah. okay, uh, which produced a lot of great women sprinters. Uh, however, if you now accept that you're going to have distance runners, it brings in a whole new set of coaches and managers, okay? And now you may have to share those perks with this new set of people, and that kind of thins them out. So we think that there was a certain amount of turf protection in, in the resistance. Because the um, British women, for example, had been running cross country. Three at, miles at for five, years. 5,000 meters. No, no, they did miles. They did miles. For, for, you know, for years. For years. And um, a sport that we became interested in and started doing cross country skiing, women were skiing five kilometers. And, and 10. And 10 kilometers. And, um, cross-country skiing, you're using your arms as well as your legs. So, you know, that's a, a lot of physical activity. Uh, but the AAU wasn't interested. Uh, in fact, there was a doctor named Gabe Merkin who spoke at the 65 convention. And he had studied... He's from the D.C. area. Yeah, he's from the D.C. Yeah. area. Yeah, we're familiar with Dr. Merkin. M-I-R-K-I-N. And yeah. uh, he had studies from Europe. They were uninterested. They just didn't want to hear it. You're exploiting young girls. That's what they. Uh, that's what they said. So rarely does change ever happen from doing what the rules say. So you made some, in the words of John Lewis, some good trouble, and uh, <laughs> you decided to go ahead and and not just run uh, an illegal 5K or 10K, but you went to the marathon. So. Uh, you know, if you're a distance runner, the marathon is one goal. Uh, sure. That may not be everybody's best event, but it's I one could, thing you might want to do. Sure. I could run in all the road races I wanted uh, at various uh, long distances, five miles, 10 miles, half marathons, um, um, 15 kilometers. 30K. Yeah, 30K, which is 18 miles, roughly. And um, so... Uh, 
I, you know, that was the marathon was the next logical, if you will, extension of the distance running I've been doing. And go big or go home. If you're going to run a marathon, you might as well make it Boston. So it was very convenient. Absolutely. So going to run, then she could come along and do it also. So Larry, we assume that you were Sarah May's coach for her first marathon. Talk to us. This mild mannered fellow um, didn't contain all this knowledge at first. He studied the really important coaches in the world at that time, Van Aken, Ernst Van Aken, Arthur Lydiard, Tom Costell, who else who I love. I don't even remember. I yeah. studied everything but I could everything I could get my hands on. Because he was coaching not only me, but the uh, the guys in our club, mostly younger people. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery. And we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs. And check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. So when you when you towed the start line of your first marathon, Larry, you were running Boston as well. How did, what were your thoughts? Did you have a plan? And on my first did, marathon? Well, yeah, I was in 65. Uh, I had been running a lot of races and I finally decided it was time to do a marathon. So in 65 and uh, as usual with a beginner, especially in Boston, I went out too fast. You must know that the profile of Boston Marathon I'm sure they know. is such that it's slightly downhill for about three miles. Well, it's actually downhill for, we know. <laughs> for 16 miles, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah May, were you there for that first marathon? Were you watching him that first marathon? Yeah, yeah I was there. And you could drive around. In yeah. those days, yeah. the field was small enough okay. so you could drive around and catch people in places along the way. And uh, I got going a little too fast. And I got to 10 miles and I looked at my watch and I thought, oh no, (laughs) my time was much too close to my 10 mile time. So, but uh, I managed to get down to Newton Lower Falls, but from there on it was survival mode. But I didn't, I was 254, I think. That wasn't too bad. I think I remember reading Sarah May saying that you looked like death at the end of that, like that she looked at you and you were pale. And and I thought, who would want to run a marathon after seeing that? So it sounds like, I was going to say, it sounds like, Larry, not only did you achieve a sub three marathon and put it out out there, but you did some reconnaissance work so that when it was Sarah May's turn, you could advise her as to how to execute the course. So talk to us and tell us what was that first training season like when you were training Sarah May for her first marathon? The first marathon I ran, uh, Larry had set up training for me so that I was doing one long workout each week. 
and then a, a road race, like a long, long run on Saturday and then a road race on Sunday as a tempo training because the road race would be at uh, between generally between five and 10 miles. Um, and, um, but the first marathon, he ran with me, uh, you know, beside me. Yeah. And uh, the whip was hidden. <laughs> well, I figured it would help keep your morale up as well as help control your pace. Which was very good. And then uh, my best Boston was the next year, and it was cool. Um, Larry cold? Had, it was cold. Larry had studied the weather, and he had decided it would be in the upper, th upper uh, 40s, 40s. On, uh, on the day of the marathon. So we wore um, shorts. You had a singlet, a t-shirt. I had a t-shirt. I had a singlet and on. And um, out in Hopkinton, it was spitting snow. It was in the upper 30s, not the upper 40s. All right. So um, uh, I was running with uh, one of the teens from our club, a, a fellow named Dick Moore, because we had run about similar paces for uh, long runs. And um, we knew we, Larry had scouted out where the uh, quarter mile marks were on the first uh, mile of, of the race so we could judge how fast we were running and not run too fast. And um, we our first quarter was actually too a fast. A little too fast. But, so we moderated a little. But we're running along. <clears throat> the weather is a little colder. I'm dressed for summer, not for late winter. And um, my hands began to get very cold. And I was scouting the crowds along the way to see if anybody had any old gloves I could beg. One woman had a pair of gloves with... with uh, Fur linings, I didn't want those. But uh, finally, about Wellesley College, an older runner came by, a fellow named Julian Siegel. How you doing, Sarah May? He said. Oh, I said, you were smart. You wore gloves. Oh, he said, do you need these? And they were white garden gloves. I said, no, no, you'll get cold. No, he said, I'm doing fine. So he gave them to me and took off. Well, my hands were so cold, I had to pull them on with my teeth. But my hands warmed up. I felt much better. And finally, after about a half an hour, uh, Dick Moore, the young, young man I was running with, said, um, are your hands warm enough now? And so I gave him the gloves. And then we sort of switched back and forth every half hour or so. And um, if you see a picture of me uh, finishing, um, you'll see these droopy white garden gloves that I'm wearing. I have to tell you about the finish. I, Dick and I are running along, Hello. and um, suddenly yes. at Kenmore Square, there's Larry. He had finished in his best Boston ever, a 238.03, and then okay. slipped on some warm-ups and ran back to okay. see where he could find me. Well, I came quicker than he expected, because there I was at Kenmore Square, and um, he, uh, he ran in with me. And Dick, who had been running by my side, took off. And he, in the last mile, he beat me by a minute, which shows you that he was, he wasn't, uh, he was holding back a little bit to stay with me. And uh, so if you see the pictures of me finishing, it's Larry in warm-ups and me with these droopy white gloves on. 
We'll have to find those and put those in our show notes. So that was your personal best that year that and you ran a 305? 30507. So that's what Boston. that's my best Boston. Best Boston. So what hap- what did you do differently? Um, I mean, the year before you ran a 322 and then you went and ran a 305. Now, the weather was cooler. I had another your- year of road race experience. I had another year of pace. And bigger mileage. And, yes, and, and bigger mileage. I wasn't running 35 to 45 miles. I was running 55 to 65 miles. Uh, I, um, in the month and a half and before Boston, I ran an 81-mile week of, of training. And the, the following week, I ran 85 miles of training. So, so I was constantly building up my distance as well as my uh, tempo training. And in, in a road race, uh, at once a week, probably. And um, so when Boston came with this very cold weather and a tailwind, a, a wind from the west blowing us along, um, that certainly helped improve my time markedly. I more more time to train and more quality training. And and that's why uh boss my Boston time was so good that year. The next you run year, it once so you knew you knew the course now yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like the course. And Larry didn't run with me. Um uh I I just ran along. Now somebody asked me, didn't Jock give you a hard time? Of course not. He had seen me in men's road races since 64. I had never tried to wear a number, which is what his big beef was about Kathy Switzer. And um, he knew I knew the rules. I didn't get in anybody's way. And in fact, if you look at the road race results over those years, I moved from like the last quarter to the first half. And the guys weren't getting worse. They were all getting better, but so was I. I think you brought up an interesting point about Jock Semple. He's He's been vilified a lot, but a lot of it, it was the rules and he had nothing against you personally running. It was just as much about his, probably his insurance and his liability and making sure. The the race, the race was important to him. And the AAU rules, which he couldn't change, which he wanted to change, he couldn't. So he could say personally to you, "I, I don't mind you're on my course, but for me to be able to keep my AAU status, I can't have you put on a bib. Is that right? Absolutely. The, the problem is that the AAU as well as the IAAF rules, if you allow ineligible runners in your race, that could taint all the other runners in that race. So that they might not they might able. lose their eligibility to compete in championships and international. Yes, and he was. I mean, one of the things he didn't like was the people who tried to get personal publicity out of the race. And we saw it for years. You would see there were a couple of guys who would sneak through to the front line, dash out so the TV could get their pictures, and then fade into the back, maybe not even finishing. Yeah. So he, he didn't like that. He wanted people to take the race seriously. And he and Will Cloney, who was the boss of the race, really... But Jock really was invested very much in it. Uh, they were trying to protect their race. The other thing I had I learned um, a few years ago, reading a book called Call Me Jock, um, was that when Jock ran marathons and road races in the 30s, 
and early 40s. He was a pretty good runner. Yes, he was. Um, the road runners were looked down on as something that lower class, working class people did. The college mile was the premier event. And when Jock started coaching people uh, like John Kelly and others, um, their, coach, their college coaches were furious because they didn't want their premier runners to be infected with this lower class kind of event. So that that was also in Jock's thinking. Of course, when we started long distance running, um, people were running, upper class, lower class, who cares? Well, in fact, what I found in, with distance runners and cross country skiers as well, is they tend to be mostly college educated. They're engineers, they're doctors, Professionals. they're, you know, it's, it's the people with that kind of personality that's attracted to distance running. So um, Jock um, wasn't really a bad guy. He was trying to protect his race and he was trying to uphold the status of distance running as worthy of um, attention, proper attention. And, so, so what happened when, when you won and, you know, you won the, the, the race won that year? Right, exactly. But so did you get any attention? Did anyone talk to you? Did you get any, yes. in, anything for that? In 1970, when I ran such a, an unexpectedly good time, um, they put a, as they did for all the runners, they put a blanket around me. And this um, fat male reporter with a camera dangling around said, uh, why did you do it? <laughs> and I was nonplussed. What did he think I was doing? You know, um, why he, he 1200 guys ran. Did he ask them why they did it? No. <laughs> I said, why do people climb Mount Everest? Because it's there. Because I can. <laughs> and um, after uh, they draped me in a towel, not a towel, wasn't it? A silver, one of those mylar blankets. Well, that year it was a regular blanket. Oh, okay, wonderful. And uh, then um, they took me to the women's skaters dressing room. At the, the Prudential Center. Yes, okay. the finish that year was at the Prudential. For several years, it was at the Prudential. And there was a skating rink there. <clears throat> and so they took me to the women's skaters dressing room. Uh, where else should they take me? They couldn't take me to the men's area. It was a locker room. Yeah, it was a locker room. And there was a, a wooden bench. If you've ever been to a girl's locker room or any locker room, there's a wooden bench in between the uh, lockers. And it's maybe a foot wide, maybe not. And I was tired. So I lay down with a blanket around me. I think there was one light bulb lit. And uh, after a long while, uh, another woman came in. And I said, there's nobody here except me, and uh, she left. And eventually I recovered enough, so I went looking for Larry, and because he had picked up some, my clothes and so on. And then I found a ladies, a ladies room, restroom to change my clothes in. But it wasn't until um, 74 when, um, I'm sorry, 72, when women were legal for the first time, that uh, we were able to go and, and have uh, uh, beef stew and so on. 
did you feel and it, now before we get to 72 and marath when women were officially allowed to enter marathons in 71 you had an unusual experience can you share a little bit about that race and why that was different for you your third boston oh, win um well um all of the women were improving okay and um it was a warmer day than in 1970 so the times were slightly slower but that's because it was warmer and more humid and um the women start and men started all at the same time and you very often didn't see any other women in the race because they were separated you know in a big crowd with only one or two women around, or even if you're a dozen in a in a race with 1,500 people, you 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 can't find the other women easily. So, um, running past uh, Boston College on Commonwealth Avenue, and then uh, there's a slight downhill to Cleveland Circle, and suddenly Nina Cusick and several of her New York running friends came running by, and um, suddenly it was a race. You know, I wasn't just trying to make a time. It was a race. And I felt as if somebody had kicked me in the pants because I said, I'm not going to let her beat me. So I pushed a little bit harder. And eventually I got past her and stayed in front of her down Beacon Street um, and eventually finished about a half minute ahead of her. That was the first, first real race. Race. I love that. And, and you and Nina, as we referenced earlier, you both are still in touch. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, Nina's a dear, a dear soul. She's That's great. So once you ran your fourth Boston, finally you were allowed to slap a bib on. How? What was that like for you? Did you feel a big difference um, being there, knowing that your time would be official? Oh, in nineteen seventy-two, the first official race. I got the flu about a month before Boston. Not a month before. You had the flu when you were running. I know. <laughs> um, so comes Boston Marathon Day. Uh, my temperature has gone down. It's only 99. Of course, my normal temperature is 97.4 in the morning. But that regardless, I couldn't not start. Okay? I had to start. And I think I ran a 348, which was my slowest Boston ever. But I couldn't not start, you know. And I said to her, I said, couldn't you have come up with a blister or something and dropped out? No. Because, <laughs> and it's true. No, she, she couldn't. Because um, there were always still in the background the AAU uh, officials lurking. Oh, see, women can't do it. They can't do it, you know. So that there was an un, unwritten agreement among all of us women. You didn't go on a marathon unless you were trained. Unless you were ready to finish. Unless you were ready to finish. So I ran and I ran poorly and I didn't run a decent race for the next year. <laughs> You know, that's so interesting. We've, we've talked to Catherine Switzer in the past, and she said the same thing that, you know, when Jock Stemple tried to push her off the course, she thought for a moment, I should just, you know, maybe I should just get off. But then she said, no, I can't, because if I do, then that they're going to say, see, a, you know, a woman can't can't finish. And that was what made her continue. So that's so fascinating that that's the thought well, that was going through all women's heads. I have, a, I have a little anecdote. Uh, about the that the year 1967. Yeah. Uh, at that point, there were around 600 entries, 
and they put us all in a, in a parking lot as a corral near the start. And they would bring out all the elite runners and line them up and then get the rest of us out. Well, the first thing is you have to get everybody in the corral. So um, Will Cloney is standing at the, the entryway to this area, this corral, and is trying to get everybody in there. And up comes Kathy Switzer in her gray sweatsuit with the, with the hood over her. But I have to tell you, even in a baggy sweatsuit, you could tell she was not a boy. <laughs> okay. So she comes up and Jock, I thought it was Jock who did it. And I, I can answer that and do, cover that later. Um, and Will Chloe puts his hand on her shoulder and says, come on, you get in there. Okay. Not noticing it's that a this is a woman. Okay. And the thing is that, um, and she had the number on her sweatshirt, okay? Not under it, but on it. And uh, I, I thought it was, I, I remembered it as being, I happened to see this happen, and I remembered it as being Jock doing it, and I checked with Catherine a few years ago, and she said, yes, it did happen, but it wasn't Jock, it was Will Cloney. But, you know, at the beginning of a marathon, both Jock and Will... They're like six inches above the ground. They're just so frantic that little details, they can't notice. It, you know, they're just... They just didn't notice her gender, and that was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was a problem at the finish. Because the Finnish officials were dear old men from the New England Track and Field Association. Uh, White-haired, glasses, um, dear old fellows. And um, if a woman finished, who was a young woman with short hair and flat-chested, um, they sometimes didn't recognize that she was a girl. And they missed a few people in between 72 and 73. And so um, in 74, when we suddenly had three and a half dozen women entered, Jenny Taylor and I went to Will Clumley and we said, you really need some women officials at the finish line because you don't want to miss anybody. And uh, well, he had no idea who, and we said, but you know, there's a couple of wives of runners who have been at every road race. They've timed, they've done timing. They know what to do. They, you know, they know not to get in the way. They know how to do timing. They won't miss any of the girls. And he finally agreed. And that's where Gloria Ratty, her husband, Charlie Ratty was a road runner. And Bev Whitney, her husband, Doug Whitney was a road runner, came in and <clears throat> were at the finish line to Checking in the women. Checking in the women. And no women were missed after that. So that's, that how, someone, that's how Gloria came in, and that's how Gloria's, yes. Gloria's role in the we BAA started. Many years later that Gloria actually had worked at one point for the CIA. And so she was not flustered by ordinary things. <laughs> not surprising. We've, we've seen her talk, and we've heard her, and she's, she's all business. She's she's. Got everything under she, control. She is she is very dear to uh, women marathoners, us early women and all the women that followed. She's she's very kind, caring, gentle, 
and loving, and we all love her dearly. Sarah Mae, Sarah Mae, did you? How long did you continue running? Oh, um, till about two thousand. Um, both Larry and I have have sort of the same problem: um, arthritis in our knees. Well, I, 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 my prime sport in college, high school and college was wrestling, actually. And in one meet, uh, when I was a uh, sophomore at MIT, I got my knee injured. And uh, that eventually led to osteoarthritis in that knee. Sophomore is 55, 56. I just want to put it in, in context. Yeah. So, but you've uh, continued, but you've continued skiing, right? And yeah, the ski well, orienteering. You can ski, it doesn't bother our knees. Right. And actually, what we liked about skiing was it was a very good cross training for running. And I've always felt that for at least in the north, uh, it's a smart thing to do for runners, particularly who want to do marathons and need to do a lot of mileage, that they ought to take up cross-country skiing and become proficient enough in it so that they can do some of their long workouts on skis in through the winter. the winter, okay? Because it, uh, it uses different muscles, it takes the strain off the ligaments and tendons, and maintains the cardiovascular progress. And then when the snow goes, you can uh, get back onto running, and you've got a terrific base to work from. And I, I've always felt that running in the winter, at least around here, where it tends to get icy a lot, you often have to run with a with a uh, a, a forced style of running, where you stiffen your legs to maintain stability on a slippery surface. And I've always felt that that can lead to injuries. What, what recommendations do you have as seasoned athletes who continue to compete? What strength training recommendations do you have? Well, uh, we, we focused our, our efforts on skiing. Ski preparation. So we tend to do things that are better for skiing. We have a Nordic track which has arm pulleys and leg sliders. Yeah, it uh, simulates the skiing activity. And um, that's but, a, So it's a lot of what I do, aside from core work, is upper body. So that's, you know, like 70 minutes a day. Um, in the wintertime, if we can go skiing at this golf course, um, we go from um, 60 minutes to 90 minutes, and we've already done several two-hour workouts there which is good considering that we haven't always had terrific snow, but they make snow. And we also do some um, um, strength workout. We try to do it once a week, although in the winter it hasn't been so regular. And then we also, there's a bike path here called the Minuteman Bike Path that runs between uh, Cambridge and Somerville and Arlington um, and Lexington. And I think it ends in Bedford. That's in Bedford. And it's about 11 miles long, and it's obviously it's an old railroad bed, and it's sort of gradually uphill from Cambridge all the way into Lexington, and then it's downhill gradually to, to Bedford. But it's a very safe place. Yes, there are intersections, but it's generally a very safe place to do roller skiing. 
And one week, Have you ever seen roller skis? Well, we have skis, they're about this long. I'll, sh I'll show And they have a one. wheel on each end. They come in different kinds of models. Some have little wheels, ours have big pneumatic wheels. And they, they have regular ski bindings on them. We use our ski boots and we just ski on these things. You see? And this is, a speed re this is a speed reducer. If you crank it down, it pushes this, this thing against the wheel and it acts to slow you down. So, so can you hold it up? Hold it up in the camera? Okay, so for those listening who can't see, it kind of looks like the bottom of a scooter. Kind of, of yeah, yeah. 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 But there's two. And, and okay. this wheel is freewheeling. This wheel has a, a clutch in it so that it won't roll backwards. So you can actually push off on it. So one week we'll do um, 80 to 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, in the springtime, we sort of start slow, uh, you know, a little shorter. And then the alternate week, we build up from 90 minutes to two hours to eventually, I think we did a we three did a hour. three hour workout yes. this fall. And do you do all your workouts together? Yes. Pretty much, yeah. I love that. I got to keep wonderful. track of him. He's a handsome That's, dude. <laughs> he is. <laughs> so we, uh, we've been lucky in many ways. Uh, I mean, now that we're, especially now that we're retired, but we've always sort of done pretty much everything together. That's how we've structured our lives. And as far as training goes, one of the things we've done, we've been able to do is instead of trying to fit your exercise or training into all the other little spaces, we do our training and we fit other things around that. So pretty much every morning is set aside for doing some kind of exercise. Before we close out our conversation, what would your um, advice be to masters runners? That would be masters runners over 40 or athletes over 40 who may be feeling a little bit uh, down about sort of slowing down and, and, and what advice would you have to those runners to keep on keeping well, on? Um, do, do some exercise every day, even if it's walking. Well, well, the thing is we know, and I certainly see it now that I'm in my 80s, that age gets to be against you at one point. So the struggle is not to improve, but to delay the degradation. Use it or lose it. Yeah, use it or lose it. Part of what we miss in not having the activity that we generally do is it's a social activity. You see people that you've known for years, you see their children grow up. Uh, so uh, there's more to it than just the athletic activity. Absolutely. Community. And hopefully we'll be able to convene again the way we, we uh, normally would very, very soon. soon. Well, we have somebody who's at the head of the government now who's taking things seriously. <laughs> <laughs> we, That's for sure. So, well, thank you so much, oh, Larry welcome. and Sarah May. You, you are both such a delight. And, and we really, really hope that one day when we're back in Boston, we have a chance to meet you both in person. Well, please um, let us know. We'd love to have you come visit. Thank you. And okay. I hope we will see you, see you the next time we are fortunate enough to be in Boston. Yes, come to Boston, let us know. We want to see you. We will. We will. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a great night. Hey, listeners. Are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? 
you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times, we love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.